Acts chapter 2, and we're looking this morning, verses 42 to 47. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would help us to still our hearts so that we could hear from you what it is that you want to say to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Do please sit down. Welcome again to College Church. I, I suppose all of us have grown up with a certain idea of what church is in our minds. Uh, personally, having grown up in the Church of England, my default idea of church is shaped by such things as these, an experience of Anglo-Saxon stone buildings mixed with Victorian wannabes, dank cold, mumbled incantations of glorious crammer prose only semi-understood. Others view church in other ways, depending on whether the church they went to growing up was old-fashioned, contemporary, fundamentalist, liberal, or whether their experience of church is mediated through the cynicism of media pundits or the latest news magazine dissing the God squad. Whatever the experience of church with which we are most familiar, we tend inevitably to import into the word church our experience of church. And so the task this morning is to take a further step towards the goal of replacing our experience of church with God's teaching about church in the Bible, and therefore to bring our churches more into line with that teaching about church. This task is made far more complicated by the fact that we are far from alone in trying to achieve it. So if you are a regular consumer, for instance, of Christian books, you will know that in the last decade, there has been a veritable mountain of books written at a popular level about what is known as ecclesiology, or the study of church. There are simple churches, and deliberate churches, and purpose-driven churches, and seeker churches, and vertical churches, and vintage churches, to name but a few what sort of church is college church? Those of you who are regular attendees at college church will know that our vision is shaped by an understanding of church where the gospel is at the heart of everything we do and that that gospel drives forward our four core values of fellowship, learning, 
outreach and worship. This is a God-centered church, if you want to handle, or one that is all about gospel growth. And that that gospel growth drives forward our four core values of fellowship, learning, outreach, and worship. In fact, that vision comes right from this passage, a paradigm of the New Testament church, which was devoted to certain things of which we today are to be devoted, namely those four elements of the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, and, and outreach. And I have then taught on this passage several times before, and in fact, my first sermon on this passage here at College Church is included in every membership package. This morning, though, I want to place this teaching in the context of our series on the Bible Explained. That is a big picture overview of the Bible from its doctrines, creation, fall, redemption, to its practices, beginning this morning with church. And I want all of us to leave with a fresh sense that it's impossible to say, I love Jesus, but I cannot stand the church any more than you can say to your best friend, I like you, but I cannot stand your wife. And so for a Christian not to be a member of a local church is as strange, biblically speaking, as for your hand to be cut off from your body. And some of those well-known biblical pictures of church we explore, bride, body, building, the temple. And all the mean, as the Swiss doctor Paul Tournier put it, there are two things we cannot do alone. One is to be married and the other is to be a Christian. Now, perhaps you feel it's disingenuous for a pastor to make the case for the church, but it seems to me it's no more so than for a father to make the case for a family. He, of all people, should know what he's talking about, sleepless nights and all. So enough preliminaries. To this end, I will make three points. First, the big picture about church. Second, the engine of gospel growth here in the church in this passage, Acts 2. And then third, three vignettes of a gospel-centered church in the context of Acts as a whole. First, the big picture about church. Now, so many things that could be said about this that I will limit myself to saying two. Both wants are the well-known quip. To dwell in love with saints above, why that will be glory. To dwell below with saints I know, why that is a different story. And they're both saying that God's redeemed people are members of the local church. So one, consider simply the Greek word for church, ecclesia. That word is not used in Acts 2, but it is used of this church in Jerusalem when Luke describes it later in Acts chapter 8. This word, ecclesia, is the same word as was used for the gathering of God's people around God's word in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, translating the Hebrew kahal. It could be used as a purely secular gathering, as in Acts 19. It was the word that Jesus used to distinguish his movement, founded upon the confession of faith that he is Lord, as Peter said, and disciplined by the practice of that confession, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And so God has gathered His people around the Redeemer, Jesus, to profess His gospel and live according to that gospel. And so every local church is the church. Not exactly the same as the kingdom, but living as an expression of that kingdom, the breaking in of the kingdom into this world as redeemed people with a message of redemption, living life as redeemed people. And so this very word, ecclesia, 
goes some way to countering the idea that it's possible to be a solo Christian separated from the local church. It is a gathering, and to be part of the gathering, you need to gather. Now, there is, of course, an idea in the Bible of the universal church, but to be a member of the universal church is to be a member of the local church, not literalistically in terms of having your name written on some piece of paper somewhere, but actually in terms of Paul's description of the body of Christ, the book of 1 Corinthians. The illustration I most often use is that of a wedding ring. This wedding ring is a formal expression of an organic reality. And that formal expression, though, matters, as it is an outward profession of my commitment to my wife. Similarly, outward expressions of commitment to the church matter, though it is the organic reality that is being witnessed. Two, consider simply the Bible's frequent picture language with regard to the church. So the church is like a body, it's like a temple or a building, it's like a bride. Charles Spurgeon at one point makes great play of the idea of the church as people uh, being like a building, living stones, as Peter calls it, to show how much we cannot be separated from the local church. As Spurgeon talked about how bricks are meant to be part of a building. He asked, what is a brick made for? To help build a house. It's of no use for that brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. The same could be said about members of a body, that picture. The idea of a hand being cut off from a body being as useful as a hand attached to a body borders on being grotesque, and it's equally ridiculous. Chuck Colson put it like this, Of course, every believer is part of the universal church, but for any Christian who has a choice in the matter, failure to cleave to a particular church is failure to obey Christ. Or as John Stott said, if the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? So the big picture about the church, even if just simply accessed through the Greek word for church, ecclesia, and the Bible's common pictures of the church as a building, a body, a bride, shows us that the church is to be central to Christian living. But what is this church like in practice? Well, second then, we have the engine of gospel growth as shown to us in Acts 2, 42 to 47. Now, again, I've exposited this passage before here, so let me simply reaffirm its basic point and then apply it simply. Its basic point is that the gospel forms this church and the gospel drives through this church and from this church. So Peter has preached his Pentecost sermon. 3,000 are converted. They are baptized. They form the fellowship that Luke later calls the ecclesia. This is a redeemed people the redeemed people of God. And having been formed by the gospel, that gospel of God then shapes everything they do in four ways. These are what they are devoted to, starting in verse 42, then repeated the same word in verse 46. They're devoted now to the apostles' teaching, or what we summarize as learning in our vision, the fellowship 
the breaking of bread and prayers, which we summarize as the gathered worship. And then in the subsequent verses, from verse 42 on, the, the paradigm, what uh, Bengal, the great scholar, called, Thou hast, O church, thy form, it is thine to preserve and guard thy trust. This paradigm is filled out and furthered. And so this worship is to be characterized by awe, that is, fear, that is, a sense, an almost noumenal sense of the presence of God in the gathered people of God. And so coming to gathered worship should never be mundane, rote, or half-hearted. But not only is the sense of our worship together to be filled with awe, it is also to be characterized by joy, exuberance, celebration. We are the redeemed people of God. And of all people in the world, we are to be most happy. And so they are praising God. They are glad. There is, as you read this passage, almost a palpable sense of excitement. It's not dour and dim bubbling without being trite and sentimental, but the kind of celebration that comes from the mixture of intimacy and yet the sense of transcendence because of being the redeemed people of God. And so the worship is characterized by awe and joy. The fellowship is characterized, this koinonia in Greek, not, not simply as a hug and a smile, but a, but a commonality, a sharing, a togetherness, not communism, but community. So their sharing was voluntary, not mandatory in their houses, which some, not all, as we can see later from Acts 5, some gave, were still their own as they met in their own houses for the smaller gatherings, as they gathered all together as 3,000 for the larger gathering in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. Now, as I say, I've preached on this and exegeted this for us several times before. There is a committed devotion to the Bible's teaching. College Church has that. As the Word goes out, it's not just the work of the pulpit, but all of us, like a tuning fork ringing, so all of us bring our lives back into line with God's Word. As J.I. Packer put it, congregations never honor God more than by reverently listening to His Word with a full purpose of praising and obeying Him once they see what He has done and is doing and what they are called to do. So it's not introverted, but the means under God for us to grow in the gospel and see the gospel grow throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and the end of the earth. That's the pattern into which this paradigm is placed. And to that pattern, we will now turn. So we've had the big picture of the church. We've had this paradigm here of Acts 2, of the gospel growth by the four core values of fellowship, learning, outreach, and worship. And now finally we have third, three vignettes of a gospel-centered church. Here in Acts, and in the context of Acts as a whole with its overarching message. So the overarching message, turn with me to the beginning of Acts chapter 1, if you will, and you'll see verse 8, the controlling idea message of Luke's whole account in Acts. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the end of the earth. So that's the story Luke is going to be telling as his history, as Jesus indicates 
That is its purpose. It is the fulfillment of God's long promise to Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden that a serpent crusher would come to redeem his people, to Abraham that this seed would be for the blessing of all nations. Through the promise of a prophet like Moses to a kingdom that will never end, to David's son, to the new heart and new spirit of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, from the Babylonian exile and the return to finally the Christ, the Messiah, has come. And now, in the now and not yet, before Jesus returns to judge, having died, risen again, He has sent His Holy Spirit. The church of Christ has formed around the confession of Jesus as Lord, as Jesus predicted to Peter, and is disciplined according to living by that gospel, as Jesus said in Matthew 18. And as redeemed people gathered around God's Word, we have the task of taking the gospel to our Jerusalem, Judea, and the end of the earth. And Acts tells that story And so it begins, and at the end, to confirm that this is the controlling message of Acts, we find Luke returns to the same theme in the words of Paul, Acts 28, verse 28. So if you turn then to the end of the book, Acts 28, verse 28, you'll see that Paul there in that verse summarizes uh, Luke's whole purpose. The gospel has started to be proclaimed in Jerusalem, the New Testament people of God gather around that gospel and then take that gospel from Jerusalem to Rome, the center of the empire, and Paul then says that God's salvation has gone to the nations, the Gentiles. It is God's purpose that it would go to the end of the earth. And so this is the context of Acts. In a word, gospel growth. And then we see God's means to that end, the expansion of His kingdom, which is Acts 2, 42 to 47, the formation of this idyllic community of believers. It's not long before the idyll, the ideal, is interrupted with reality in Acts 4 and 5. There are two other little deliberate vignettes of the early church. So if you look at Acts 4, 32 to 37, you'll see there's a similar account of the elements of gospel growth around fellowship, learning, outreach, and worship with a particular emphasis here on the remarkable generosity of Barnabas. So this community was fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament of a people so committed to the work of the gospel that it was sharing their new heart and new spirit toward each other, no poor among them, for the work of the gospel to go from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. And then Acts 5, after a sad interlude of Ananias and Sapphira who cheat on God's bride, we have verses 12 to 16, the third of these three vignettes. There's another vignette of this gospel community around these four core values of fellowship, learning, outreach, and worship, with an emphasis here upon the strange reality that both, verse 13, there was a fear and strong sense of the presence of God, but at the same time, such a reality of the truth of God, of His greatness, of His power, of His majesty, that verse 14, there's a draw to many to put their faith in this Jesus. So then how does this all, this big picture of church in the Bible, this engine of gospel growth in Acts 2 and the three vignettes of the church in the context of the purpose of Acts as a whole, how does this give us a fresh sense of love for the local church? Here are three ways. One, it puts church in the center of our giving. Joshua Harris said it like this in his book about the church. 
talking about tithing. Many wonderful, worthy and wonderful ministry opportunities exist all over the world, but because the local church, he wrote, is the place you are nourished spiritually, it should be the first place you invest financially. If you've never taken the step to obey God through faithful giving, let me urge you to begin the adventure today, he wrote. Or we might put it like this, koinonia is the word for fellowship. Koinonikos is the Greek word for financial generosity. So because of koinonia, we have koinonikos. We do. That's one way. Two, it puts church in the center of our mission. If Acts 1 verse 8 is God's announced means of getting to Acts 28 verse 28 at the center of the Roman Empire, that is of taking the God-centered gospel to Jerusalem and from there to the end of the earth, and if the means to that is the church, then our churches should be missional and our mission should be ecclesial. George W. Truett, one-time pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, said, the supreme indictment that you can bring against a church is that such a church lacks in passion and compassion for human souls. A church is nothing better than an ethical club if its sympathies for lost souls do not overflow and if it does not go out to seek to point lost souls to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Center of our giving, center of our mission three, it puts church in the center of our community. So never again can we say, I do church on my own any more than we can say, I do marriage on my own. Never again can we say, I've had lots of teaching through classes or online videos any more than we can say, I heard a class about marriage, therefore I do not need to get married. Never again can we say, I am a sinner, I cannot possibly get it really, truly involved with those saints. One illustration of this comes from the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I understand AA may not be, as it were, everyone's cup of tea, but the story of the founding is instructive about the importance of community. Ernst Jertz tells the history of its founding like this. Bill Wilson had remained sober for a few months, but then on a trip out of town, a business deal fell through, and so passing through a hotel Lobby, he overheard the well-known sounds of ice clinking and glasses. He went over to the bar saying to himself, I need a glass. But then a new thought came to him which made him stop. No, I don't need a drink. I need another alcoholic. And so he walked over instead towards the telephones and began a series of calls that connected him with Dr. Smith, who became Supporter AA's co-founder. So look at it like this. When you think you need to sin... Tell yourself instead, no, you need other sinners under God's word in the community of the church, bearing each other's burdens, encouraging each other in our walk following Jesus. Now, I suppose inevitably when we think of a fresh love for the local church, some of us will perhaps feel a bit like C.S. Lewis when he first committed himself to church. He wrote, I dislike very much their hymns which I consider to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. <laughs> hmm. 
But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you're not fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. And you see, as we get out of that solitary conceit, then we begin to see behind the curtain to the prayer warrior sitting next to you and realize that God has invested in the church His whole redemption message for the whole world. And here right now, we are straining ahead by the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel for God's glory. And so we move from cynicism to to wondering at the sheer majesty of God's investment in the local church. And then that could lead us to wonder whether we can ever live up to the pattern we find in Acts 2. Perhaps you've heard the story of the composer Igor Stravinsky, who wrote a new work that contained an extremely difficult violin piece. After a number of weeks of rehearsal, the soloist went to Stravinsky and told him he simply could not play it. The violinist had done his best, but the passage was too hard, perhaps even actually unplayable. (laughs) Stravinsky was said to have replied, I understand that. What I'm after is the sound of someone trying to play it. (laughs) Well, the church is God's gospel masterpiece, and the master is asking us to play it. Let's bow our heads and uh, as we consider this church, come before Jesus, the master of the church. Perhaps uh, we need to confess that we have not looked at his bride with the kind of love which, which he looks at her. Father, would you help us to see in your local church the story of Acts, your redeemed people gathering around the message of redemption, living out that message in practice and taking that message to our Jerusalem, Judea, and the end of the earth. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, renew in us a fresh love for the local church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.